If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open them with me to the book of John. John chapter 4, we return to our study of this gospel and uh, to the second half of the encounter that we looked at last week, the encounter of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, a story that's familiar to uh, many of you who grew up in the church, maybe new to some of you who didn't grow up in the church. You'll remember that uh, the center of our reflection on this story, on this encounter last week, and the center of Jesus' discussion with this woman was this idea of thirst, right? He came to the well thirsty. She came to the well thirsty. They had come for water. But Jesus used that idea, that concept, as an opportunity to focus her attention and her heart on a much bigger need. And so breaking down cultural barriers, breaking through and ignoring social norms, Jesus, a man, a Jewish man, engaged this woman a Samaritan woman exposing her story, exposing her, her sketchy past and inviting her to himself. Right? He invited her to see that he was the water that she needed. That it was to him that she needed to look for peace, for satisfaction. And we were reminded, I hope, last week, that just like her, we're all thirsty. We're all thirsty. We're all working to quench that thirst in some way. And Jesus reminded us to look to Him because only He is sufficient. Well, this morning, as we return to this interaction, it takes a turn, a turn that dives deeper into something else that is at the heart of the human experience, not just thirst, but worship. Worship. Ten times in these verses that I'm about to read to you, ten times this word worship is used. Now originally, uh, we were going to work our way all the way through the end of the story through verse 45, but uh, as I got gone on this sermon, as I realized what was going to be a part of this service in terms of my prayer, in terms of our brother's remarks, uh, I decided to stop us short, and so we're not going to quite end the story today. We'll return to it next week. My hope this morning is that I will be a little briefer than normal to kind of catch us up time-wise. But listen as I read, and if you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, verses 19, ending at verse 26 this morning, 19 through 26. Listen as I read. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, 
and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. Let me begin with a simple question asking, what is worship? If this word is used over and over again in this passage, ten times, which it is, what is worship? What are we talking about? What is Jesus talking about. I think sometimes in our evangelical circles in modern America, when we say the word worship, we immediately think music, right? That was worship what we did, not this, not what's to come. And that's not true. That's incorrect. All of what we do this morning is Worship. And this woman, as she comes to Jesus, she is certainly thinking about Sabbath gathering, about bringing her offering, about bringing her sacrifice. And we often think about worship in the context of religion in the formal sense of the word, and that's certainly appropriate. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but worship is far bigger than that, right? For even secular, non-Christian people, those who would never enter these doors, they too are worshipers. They too worship. You see, the English word worship simply comes from the old English word, worth-ship. Worth-ship. Right? We see the beauty, we see the value, the worth in something, and we respond in some way. We may respond in praise. Wow, that is incredible. We may respond with some sort of change in our behavior as we walk away from whatever we have beheld. Worship then, not just in the narrow sense of the world, but in the larger sense of the word, is at the heart of all that we pursue, all that we prioritize as humans, as creatures. And I'd like us to think like that, to be challenged this morning in that. Not just about the implications of of this conversation between Jesus and this woman. For this, what we're doing this morning, not just the implications for this, but for us as a people. For all of life. As we walk out these doors and come back in seven days. What happens Monday through Saturday? And so real briefly this morning, two realities about worship that I want to meditate on, two realities that I believe Jesus communicates in this interaction, two truths that speak to the who and the how of worship. Next week, we will go to the so what of worship. But this morning, the who and the how, and the first reality is this. True worship is in a person, not a place. True worship is in a person, not a place. This morning as we jump back into the middle of this conversation between Jesus and this woman, 
Jesus, you'll remember those of you who were here last week, Jesus had exposed this woman's past. He had exposed what she wasn't forthright with. He had exposed this woman's sin. And so some people claim that as we jump back into these verses, she is quickly changing the subject to get away from her personal life into higher things, into theological things. That could be the case, but I'm not so sure that that's what she's doing. After all, she could have just walked away in shame, but she continues to stand there and engage Jesus. You see, I think the Samaritan woman, by Jesus' remarks to her, I think she in some way is pricked. She knows the kind of life that she's been living. She knows the emptiness of her search for water to quench that thirst. And now here is a guy who's talking like he's got some answers, like he's got some authority. And so she brings up one of the most controversial things. Yes, it's a theological discussion, but it's one of the most controversial things between Jews and Samaritans of that day, their place of worship. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say, she says to Jesus, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And here's what I want you to hear when you hear that phrase or when you hear that verse, verse 20. Here's what I want you to hear her saying, I know that I'm a sinner, but where must I go to atone for my sin? Where must I go to be made right with God? If you've got the answers, please tell me. I, I perceive you're a prophet, she says. You see, as I mentioned briefly last week, the Samaritans, the Samaritans didn't recognize the temple in Jerusalem. They had their own temple. They worshipped at Mount Gerizim. Because Mount Gerizim overlooked Shechem. Shechem was the place where Abraham set up an altar when he first entered the promised land. It will return as part of God's people's story because it was also the place where God's blessings were read after Israel crossed into the land in Deuteronomy 28. And so the Samaritans thought this was the place where we ought to worship. This was the place of cultural and covenantal significance. And you see, the reality is that the Samaritans, in contrast to the Jews, they only accepted the Pentateuch as the Word of God. They didn't accept the Psalms. They didn't accept the writings of the prophets. And so that informed where they worshiped. These were not only two different places of worship, but fundamentally, these were two different ways of worshiping God, which is why Jesus answers her in the way that he does. Jesus is out to teach her, to remind her that all worship is not the same, that all roads do not lead to God, and he's going to realign her view of worship. True worship is in a person, not in a place. So I want to briefly look at the three phrases that he speaks. Three phrases that explain this point. That it's not about a place, this mountain, or that mountain, but it's about a person. 
The first phrase is found in verse 22, where Jesus says, salvation is from the Jews. Jesus immediately pits her religion with his. He says, her people, the Samaritans, they worship what they don't know, but the Jews worship what has been revealed. Now, Jesus is not accusing her or the Samaritans of being insincere. They are sincere as they can be, but he is accusing them of being wrong. The Samaritans, not accepting the Old Testament, not accepting the revelation of Yahweh to his people, are outside of the stream of God's revelation. And yet, it was always God's design, going all the way back to Abraham, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, that God's covenant with him and his seed would result in him and his seed being a blessing to the nations. Salvation is from the Jews. It was then, and it still is. It always will be the vehicle through which salvation comes to the world. The second phrase, he speaks twice in verses 21 and 23, where he says, the hour is coming. This is not a passing comment for Jesus. The hour is coming is a technical phrase that Jesus will use over and over again throughout his ministry to describe his death. And while she likely isn't aware of it, it's an indicator for the reader of where this is all headed. An indicator of this new age of worship that Jesus is coming to inaugurate. An age when the cross and Jesus' mediation is central to all of worship. And that brings us to the last significant phrase in this conversation at the end of verse 26. He says, I who speak to you am He. We could also translate that phrase without doing violence to the Greek. I who speak to you, I am. I who speak to you, I am. When Jesus says that, this sends alarm bells off in any Jew, in any Samaritan's ears, because Jesus intentionally, in the style of the God of the Old Testament, the God who described himself in Exodus to Moses in Exodus 3 as I am. And so this is Jesus' mic drop, so to speak. This is Jesus culminating the conversation through these three phrases on himself. Salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming. I am. True worship is in a person, not in a place. Jesus has already pushed back against the cultural walls that divide people, and now he pushes back on the compartmentalization of our religion, and he makes an exclusive claim on access to the Father. He does the same thing for us this morning. True worship is found in a person, not in a place. We meet God in Jesus, not 
in a temple. Now that, of course, doesn't make what we do here insignificant. And I'm not just saying that because I'd be out of a job if I did. But it does mean that ritual has turned into relationship. And that's where we go next, to what logically follows. If true worship is found in a person and not a place, then I simply want to make this point. True worship is relational. True worship is relational. Now, it's certainly more than that, but it's not less than that. And that's what I want you to see this morning. That's what I want you to be challenged by this morning. This is at the heart of worship, is relationship. Now, I suppose one can argue that we don't need to say that, right? We've been here speaking, singing, listening to a personal being, a personal God. But I say that, and I I go in this direction because I think it's so easy for us to lose sight of this reality. I really do. And I can hear it sometimes in the way that we pray. Because sometimes even as we pray, we pray about God rather than as if we're talking to God. See, Jesus is sitting there talking to this woman, turning her attention away from old forms, namely the temple that she's used to going to, and he's encouraging her to look to him, to drink of him the living water. And so when he says in verses 23 and 24 that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, He is describing on the very simplest of levels, intimate friendship, relationship. Now we could say a whole lot more about those phrases. What does it mean to worship God in spirit and truth? We'll dig into that a little bit. We will not exhaust it, I guarantee you. But in its basis form, at the simplest level, it's about intimate friendship. It's about relationship. How do you describe close friends? This person's my soulmate. This person is a kindred spirit. Right? The kind of folks that you can tell anything to. Unmasked truth. You're real before them. You might say, we're friends in spirit and in truth. Listen to this passage from Isaiah 59. The Lord says this, As for me... This is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What does that mean? It means this. When the Redeemer comes, the Lord is saying, It will be such an intimate relationship that to say God is in His temple and we have His law will not be enough. No, when the Redeemer comes, when the relationship is transformed from ritual to relationship, now His Spirit will be in us and His truth will be in us. We are bound to Him and He to us. 
We will know the truth of who he is and our hearts will respond accordingly. You see, this is a worship, a relationship through Christ given by the Holy Spirit that's not merely external, but that's internal. That's not just going through the motions, but is relational. It's grounded in truth, yes, but it's also spiritual in character. It's worship that engages the heart as well as the head. It's worship that is in spirit and in truth. And so God will declare over and over again in His Word, places like Isaiah 1, Psalm 51, that He disdains empty sacrifice and empty ritual, rote and meaningless prayers. He doesn't want them. He wants and delights in a broken and contrite heart. In a spirit that knows Him and loves Him for who He is and wants to relate to Him accordingly. God wants to be worshipped in relationship, not by ritual. And we are here celebrating the fact that we can do that because of Jesus. And it doesn't diminish God's holiness or transcendence. Not one bit. But it gives us standing with Him as we believe the truth of Jesus, as we are united to Him by His Spirit, walking and living with God, worshiping Him in intimacy and love. This is worship in spirit and in truth. So what does this practically mean? As we close, let me just give a few things. A few things that really could be unpacked in weeks to come. And perhaps they will come up again in the Gospel of John as we keep working our way through John's Gospel. The first thing is this. God cares about how He is worshipped. God cares about how He is worshipped. Secondly, we can have the right words and actions, but be far from God. Right? We can attend church. You can be here this morning and not really have worshipped one bit. I mean, what has your experience been like for the past hour? What's your experience been like? Just a mindless following through the program? Or an intentional engagement with the risen Christ who is here by His Spirit, who gives us access to the Father. You see, our hearts, I know this because I have a heart, our hearts love to check boxes. Our hearts love to complete lists. And we need to be reminded that true worship is relational. Well, there's lots more we could say about that for our context here. But there's another practical implication that I want to just state briefly before we conclude. We actually don't have to be in church to experience true worship. Worship involves all of our lives. 
Right? You should be worshiping Him when you take your first breath in the morning, when you stand in the awe and the beauty of Mount Baker or Mount Rainier, when you open up His Word together as a family. As I stated earlier, worship is all of life, and yet you do need to be here. Not because God can only be found here, but because in a unique way He is found here. In your brothers and sisters, in the means of grace, the Word, and the sacrament, and in your service, as you use your gifts to serve one another and to serve Him. We'll talk more about that next week. Worship is what we're doing this morning. And worship is what we need to be doing when we leave this place. Living for the worth of a being like no other. Living in relationship to the One who promises to abide with us. Worshiping the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this reminder this morning through your word through the Apostle John, through your Holy Spirit who inspired these words of where true worship is found. Father, we confess, I confess that I have a heart sometimes that can easily slip into a rut of ritual and forget about the personal God who desires more than my ritual but my heart and my adoration. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that You would renew in us a right spirit. That You would create in us clean hearts because of Your Son. And that You would lead us in the way everlasting. The way of, of true worship. Father, that we might go from this place Change that we might go from this place useful for the glory of your name, for the glory of your fame in all the earth. So take this word I ask, plant it deep in us for the glory of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.